Hey, the reminder for those of you who uh, aren't here every time or who weren't here last time or last year, um, I don't always wear the kind of priestly stole here thing, but, um, but during um, Advent, I love doing it. We did it a few years ago, and it was such a great connector for me um, spiritually and physically. I love the physical representation of the physical, of the spiritual things that are happening, like baptism and communion, lighting candles, um, uh, decorating in different ways. It's just amazing how this is all integrated. But for me, it helps connect me to the fact that there are um, followers of Jesus Christ around the world right now, um, all celebrating. There is a, from different ethnicities, different nations, different denominations, um, different perspectives, and yet we are united by this one thing that we celebrate, that we are eagerly anticipating the coming of the Messiah and to celebrate His advent uh, that he came and to learn what it means to celebrate and wait for the fact that he's coming again. And so um, uh, I, I like wearing it, and it's a great reminder to me, hopefully for you as well. Um, okay, so doing a little research this week, I realized I have something called thasophobia. Um, thasophobia is the irrational fear of being bored. Um, and, and this isn't news to most of you who know me. It's certainly not news to my wife, who about six years ago when I was getting ready for my first sabbatical um, and was going to go spend some time in total isolation by myself um, for what seemed like a bordering on eternity. It was three days, but what seemed like um, an unthinkable amount of time. And even just the thought of going sent me into low-level anxiety attacks every time I just thought about it. Um, and, uh, and then I literally getting ready to head out and was meeting with one of my mentors, uh, Newt Farah, and right before I got in the car, he said, stop me. He said, oh, and by the way, make sure and uh, leave your watch in the car when you get there. And I had a new anxiety attack and, and had to really wrestle through that. And understanding the reason why is because I realized I use my watch to measure how much time I have left that I have to entertain myself before it's bedtime. And that that's, my, that's what I've got to be able to do, and that lets me know. And if I wake up in the morning and I don't know what time it is, I don't know how much more time I have to entertain myself. And, uh, and so if, then if I take a nap in the middle of the day and wake up, do I have three hours left or seven hours left? Or like how much is left that I've got to keep myself entertained so that I don't get bored? And, uh, and when I asked my wife about it, she said, well, it's because you're, you have, you're afraid of being bored. And I immediately said, no, I'm not, because denial is a real thing. Um, and uh, it's not just a river in Egypt anymore. It's, it's um, something that we all wrestle with. And it took me about a few seconds of introspection to realize Oh gosh, she's totally right. I have, a, I have an inborn, I don't know where I learned it, I have a deep-seated fear of being bored. And, uh, and so this whole conversation about waiting is hard for me. Um, it's not something I like doing. In fact, it's amazing to consider, as I thought through this, that our culture, one of the number one measures of failure is waiting. If you go somewhere and they make you wait, you feel disrespected, you feel like you haven't been well taken care of, right? You feel like they have failed in some way. I mean, if there's four people standing in line at the checkout, they need to open a new checkout line, right? There's a strong sense of almost moral indignation when people make us wait. And, and it's intriguing because God does amazing things for people who wait well, or so I've heard. This is a, or when I read it in the scriptures, when I read about it, that God does amazing things during this. <clears throat> so <clears throat> we identify as a body who is waiting for Jesus to come, who celebrate the fact that they had to wait and eventually he came. But what are we doing with that waiting? 
And so I realized in learning this, and also I don't learn well just from principles. Maybe some of you do, but I need a person. I need people to follow. Um, uh, T.H. White, at the end of Once and Future King, to paraphrase, T.H. White said um, that most people won't follow an ideal, but they will follow a man with an ideal. And I definitely fall into that heading. I need to see it done. I need to see it lived out. And so I asked God for and searched for some waiters. Now, Already you can see the problem with the English language that we ran into like we did with John with faith. We don't have an active verb for faith. And when we describe waiters, you either think I mean something to keep your legs dry when you're duck hunting, or you mean I think someone who's going to bring your food and drinks to you at the restaurant. Because we don't have a word for someone who waits well, a professional waiting person. That's probably because we have absolutely no respect for that. We have no interest in learning that. That's not something we want to be good at. So, so this idea of learning to be waiters, people who wait well, is a gift and a skill that I feel like in the church, maybe we could get better at it. Because as we looked at from Isaiah last week, we're not going to out-busy the world. We're not, going to, we're not going to offer the world something by being busier. The number one negative feedback, the hardest thing for us as church staff, I'll tell you right now, the hardest thing for us as church staff is canceling things. We get more pushback from you than anything else by saying we're not going to do something. That is when we get people rising up, which is fine. That's good. I'm glad the people of our church want to do things. But sometimes we wonder about us and you, all of us together, do we just want to do things so that we have something to do? Um, versus is there something valuable and intentional about it? So for, as we wrestle through this, because we aren't good at waiting, um, we're, we're actually pretty terrible. And amazingly, I had somehow never noticed until I put on these lenses that Advent is one of the main themes of Advent is waiting. Now, I should have caught on to that since Advent essentially means waiting. Um, it means to wait. That's what it's about. And so it's really what it's all about is waiting for this thing to happen, preparing for this thing to happen. Um, but again, I don't look for that, so I didn't hear it. Um, and uh, uh, I finally, when I found this one, there's so little, there seemed to be so little about him in Scripture that I wrestled with, with this. But, but we know well enough now, after studying Scripture for so long, that very often what seems like flyover country in the Bible actually has some very deep, deep roots. And once again, that turns out to be true. And in fact, I like to really focus on one like really cool reveal to kind of help us connect with Scripture there's going to be at least four or five of them in this sermon that may connect to you, it may not. Maybe one does, maybe one doesn't. But I hope um, that they speak to you in a way that I never could, that God's Word will speak to you in these reveals that are, that are here in Scripture that are easy for us to miss. So two. So we're going to look in Luke chapter 2. Um, we're going to look at two people who are not in the manger scene, though they were part of the story long before the wise men, probably. They're among the first to declare who Jesus is. There will be two witnesses to his identity, and that's significant. First, though, I want, don't want to assume you know who Luke is. Um, we have a, a lot of people who come to our church who are newly churched or, or freshly churched or sometimes badly churched or traumatically churched, and we want to be a good place for that. But in case you're, you, you, may, you, you can come and you're like, oh, everyone else seems to know what he's talking about, and I don't, and that can feel really strange. One, they don't. And two because uh, that's more about me. I'm, I'm not always that easy to follow. But number two uh, is that, that this is, we all have a day, a day and age. There was always a stage in our life when we didn't know what these things were as well. 
um, either intuitively or from experience. But so I want you to know, for example, who Luke is. So Luke is one of our four gospel writers. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and so very often if you ask people to name 12 apostles, they start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And at that point, you've named two um, because Mark is not an apostle and Luke is not an apostle. Um, Mark was probably Peter's note taker. And so you can study the book of Mark by looking at the beginning and ending to Peter's sermons that Mark is probably taking notes on. It's really, they're written like sermons. There's these brilliant little insights woven into the book of Mark um, that are so fun to unpack. That's why it's one of my favorite books to teach. Um, John, uh, John, for example, John was one of the apostles, and John is writing with the mindset of, hey, I was there for all of this from beginning to ending. I was there for the entire first, essentially, century of Christianity, um, he was the last living apostle, almost certainly, and he's writing these things down saying, I have the complete picture, and I am able to tell you this is why Jesus came. It was to save your soul, and I'm going to write forever, and I'm going to write a gospel, a, a narrative of his account, of the account of his life that shows you this. So everything you read in John, you go, why did John include this chapter? It'll be there to save your soul forever. But Luke... So with Luke, Luke wrote Luke and the book of Acts. Luke was there for many of the books, many of the things that happened in the book of Acts. He was a traveling uh, a guy, apparently a doctor. The, the Apostle Paul references that he was a doctor, probably Greek, probably not Jewish. Um, traveled with the Apostle Paul a lot during the end of Paul's life, and especially at the very end. Many people think that Luke was maybe the only of Paul's students who was right there with Paul when Paul was going to be executed in Rome. And so that's Luke. Luke was a researcher. He was a professional researcher. And he goes back and actually tells us at the beginning of Luke that he's writing for a population. He's maybe even an individual, Theophilus. Theophilus means the friends of God. But, so it may just be a general picture, but it, it may be an individual that he's writing for. And so he's writing, but how does he get this information? Luke wasn't there for this. Luke wasn't, wasn't there for the things we're going to be reading from today. He wasn't there for these. So how does he get this? Well, no one was there for this except for Mary, Joseph, Jesus. Jesus is a month old. His memory of it, it wouldn't be all that good probably. On top of the fact that he was dead and had gone returned to the Father, uh, resurrected and returned to the Father long before Luke wrote this stuff. Joseph isn't mentioned after Jesus is 12, and everyone assumes that Joseph died before Jesus was 30, which means there's only one person left for Luke to be interviewing about these activities and these events, and that's Mary. So you can go through the book of Luke. One of my favorite games to play with myself when I'm going through the book of Luke is to ask, what question did Luke ask whom in order to get the story? Who was Luke talking to and what did he ask to get the story that came? So here we're going to have this account that I assume comes from Mary, that after eight days, so we, most of us know this, the account of the nativity. We've seen it in cartoons or whatever enough, at least, at least close so that you have Mary and Joseph. They go to Bethlehem. I'll talk more about that probably next week. They go to Bethlehem. Um, they uh, give birth. Mary gives birth to her firstborn son, and a bunch of shepherds show up, and they celebrate him at the commands of, an, of a group of angels, and they celebrate him, and then they stay in Bethlehem, apparently for a couple of years at least. We don't know, for, but they seem to stay in Bethlehem, even though that's not where they're from, for a couple of years. That's where we are. But, but going back, they're in Bethlehem. They've given birth. They're probably living with family there. And, it's, and after eight days, Jesus is going to be circumcised. So a woman was ceremonially unclean for the first stage of her uncleanness came um, for seven days after giving birth, just like it did with her monthly cycle. 
Now, again, we use the word unclean, and we automatically think bad, dirty, something like that, because for us, cleanliness is next to godliness. That is not in the Bible. That is not a biblical concept. And this idea of of unclean means sacred. It means set apart. It It means a special period of time. And what this meant was for seven days, every month, women of childbearing years could not handle money. They could not prepare food. They could not work around the house. They couldn't raise, they couldn't handle the children over a certain age. In other words, God created a law that gave women about a seven-day vacation every single month during their childbearing years. The women of the community probably did not feel badly about this uncleanliness thing, right? Grandparents had to step up, husband had to step up, other children had to step up and take over during that time, right, for a change. So that's the, that's the picture. Now, when giving birth, in addition to those seven days, so at the end of the seven days, a boy would be taken in and circumcised and given a name. Jesus would have been brought in somewhere to a rabbi. The rabbi would have circumcised baby Jesus and then given him the name that, that Joseph had pronounced, which was Yeshua, Joshua what we shorten Jesus, what we call Jesus. But his name would have been Yeshua. And so this is the name that he is given after eight days, after he was circumcised, as Gabriel had said. Then, verse 22, And then the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Holy doesn't mean better. It means set apart, sacred. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So let's check Luke on this. Leviticus 12 is where we find these instructions. Um, uh, The seven days of ritual impurity. And then in the case of a boy, child, the woman had 33 more days of purification for a total of 40. Leviticus 12, 6 and then 8. And when the days of her purification are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter... She shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of the meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. If she cannot, verse 8, if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. So first thing, you should notice a couple of things. One is that Mary and Joseph were poor. Mary and Joseph brought the poverty sacrifice. As it set up before. Now, I mentioned that in the first service, and immediately afterwards, um, a gentleman comes up to me after the first service and says, Well, it's not like they needed to purchase a lamb to bring. They had already brought the lamb to the temple. And I was like, Dang, how did I miss that? Like, that's just, that'll preach. That's good stuff right there. So they're exactly right. Here's what's fascinating about this passage this passage shows us once again that babies are sacred. Human life is sacred. Mothers are sacred. The bond between mothers and their babies is sacred. God set aside 40 days in the case of a male child, twice that long in the case of a female child, in which the mother was considered ritually impure. Again, back to that same thing. She couldn't prepare food. She couldn't handle money. She couldn't touch people under certain conditions. All these different things. Again, we go, oh, that sounds so restrictive. Yeah, until you live in it, and then you realize it's not restrictive. This is, pater- this is maternity leave long before, and this is maternity leave unlike we do it here. It's not that mom now gets to stay at home and take care of all of her children. It's that mom's not allowed to take care of anyone except her newborn and herself. 
It's a really amazing picture that, they, that, that God has created with this to communicate the sacred nature of this bond. So, and firstborn sons are meant to be consecrated to the Lord in particular. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, this is the tent of, at the tent of meeting, or maybe the synagogue or the tabernacle when this was written, um, but they go to the temple. Um, Mary and Joseph take Jesus up to the temple. So why? Why all the way to the temple? Well, again, let's a little insight into the situation. They're in Bethlehem, and even though we live in Texas and everything is far away from everything in Texas, that's not true in Israel. Israel's a tiny place. Bethlehem is less than two miles from Jerusalem. And these are people who are used to walking dozens of miles a year, if not hundreds of miles a year. And so for them to just walk up to the temple, I mean, it's your firstborn child. If you could consecrate him at the temple, why wouldn't you? So they decide to take him up to the temple. It's close. This idea of being consecrated to the Lord, um, the firstborn son, what happens is they take the son in. This is how it's done today, is they take the son in. The son is set apart for God, like it was Samuel or, or some other baby that's set apart for God and that God now is going to take into his, that, that essentially the priestly class would say, this is now God's son. He's going to work for us starting now. We're going to raise him up potentially. But what happens is the priestly class obviously doesn't have the room for every firstborn child. That, that's, this is a, a consecration, it's a communication. We're giving this child you, to you, Lord. And what would happen is they would hand the newborn boy over to the priest after these 30 days, after these 40 days, and the priests would then sell the boy back to them. In other words, the, the parents would have to shell out a certain amount of money. Today it's done um, kind of as, a, as just an activity, like there's a certain coin they use that they give this coin as a way of representing, I am now buying this child back from the Lord to raise. Even though he is the Lord's son, I'm going to raise him as my son. This is very fascinating to consider Joseph doing this. It's an amazing consideration to imagine Joseph, who is not Jesus' biological father, taking Jesus to the temple and saying, Lord, this is your son. Yes, yes, so far so good. And now figuratively, I will be paying you in order to get the son back who is really your son that I'm going to raise. So it's a cool picture to imagine. And that's what would have happened. Some version of that would have happened right here in this chapter. We miss it because we're not Jews, but that's what would be going on here. All right, so now, verse 25, now we meet our person. I've set the stage. They go up into the temple. I've set the stage, and now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. <clears throat> so uh, one of the sermons I listened to, uh, it's, a, it's a little mini-sermon, Skip Heitzig, who is a, kind of a fun guy to listen to sometimes, he um, this was a little mini sermonette he did, and he's about Simeon, and he just threw, he just throws out an idea. He'll like throw something out, and then he moves along. And I'm I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a whole sermon, that little bit. So then I want to unpack all of that, and that's what ends up sometimes happening with this. Um, he in, he introduces Simeon as essentially the founding of the whole tradition of Santa Claus. That's that's not right, and he knows it. He's just making a joke. But he says, here you have this old man with a full white beard who's holding babies in a public setting, like that was it's in a mall, except it's a temple. Um, but here we, have, here we have Simeon. Simeon's name means he has heard. Now we do know, just for fun, those of you who like this kind of stuff, we do know there was a rabbi from this era named Simeon, a famous rabbi from this era named Simeon. If you've done any research into Jewish history from the first century, especially the rabbinical history, you've probably heard of Hillel or Gamaliel. Um, Hillel and Gamaliel were two pretty famous ones. Gamaliel is actually mentioned in the book of Acts. There's other writings from Gamaliel. 
Um, Simeon would have been the son of Hillel and the father of Gamaliel. Now, intriguing, if that's the Simeon, there's no way to make that. We don't know for sure that that's this connection. It would make a certain amount of sense. Maybe that's why no more, not more detail is given about him, because the readers would know who he was. Um, Luke, this is, he is described as being devoted, righteous and devoted, Simeon is. When Luke uses the term devoted, Luke means devoted to the law. He means devoted to the Jewish practice of the law, devoted to the faith. And this is important because we're going to see Simeon and one other person presented as witnesses of who God is, of who Jesus Christ is. And in Jewish law at this time, your level of righteousness and devotion was huge. If you can imagine, there was a day and age when witnesses were immediately put on trial for how righteous they were. You're going to step up and say, I want to speak into this situation. The judge is going to say, okay, tell me who you are. Why should we listen to you? Are you righteous? Are you devout? Are you serious? Are you a serious follower of Yahweh? And so we're told right off the bat, this guy is a, this guy is a worthwhile witness. He is righteous and he's devoted. And it says that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's fascinating. Here you have a man waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation meaning to comfort. That, that apparently Israel was in need of comfort. And they were. I'm going to talk about this in a second. In fact, Simeon would have known that well. Israel needed comfort. They needed a prince of peace. And I don't want to lose in here the fact that Jesus did come to do this. He says so. In Matthew 23, 37, 33 years later, Jesus, after weeping for the city of Jerusalem during the triumphal entry, is going to end one of his last speeches with this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus had come. God had wanted to comfort Jerusalem. But by the time Luke wrote this all down with this account of Simeon, it was already well known that Jerusalem was not to be comforted. Jerusalem was not interested in being comforted by Yahweh. Jerusalem wanted the comfort of Rome or the comfort of, of a ruler or the comfort of someone who they could understand, but they didn't want the comfort that God would give. For those of us with thasophobia, this is a scary passage. The idea of a God who wants to comfort us, but we're too busy to sit there under His wings We've got to rush out from under his wings and get stuff done. and do the, we, don't, we don't get still and quiet long enough to experience being comforted by him. There's something for us to be very wary of as we're studying through this. It seems like Simeon had been waiting for a long time for this baby dedication. Verse 26 picks up, It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Keep in mind, this is the Holy Spirit working in a man before Pentecost. This is not, the new covenant has not yet been ushered in. The idea of God's word being written on our hearts, that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are in that instant, whether we feel it or not, sealed by God's Holy Spirit, empowered by God's Holy Spirit, gifted by God's Holy Spirit, maybe renamed by God's Holy Spirit, that these things happen to us, whether we feel it or not is irrelevant. It is something that happens that all of God's gifts are then at the fingertips of those that where our fingers touch the Holy Spirit's fingers. God's miracles exist. We can see these and hear these and experience these and watch for them if we're listening and seeing them. 
This is something that, that this is before all of that. This is a special visitation of the Holy Spirit, like coming upon Samson before he slays a thousand people, or coming upon Saul before Saul prophesies. This is a special visitation of the Holy Spirit. This is very special and rare. The Holy Spirit has delivered a message to him, revealed the word that Simeon would not die until he had seen the Lord's anointed one. Remember, that's what Christ means from last week. Um, one, of Heitzig, one of the things that Heitzig did in his little mini-sermon is he just referenced he just referenced this. Imagine if Simeon is 80 years old, 60 to 80 years old, what he'd experienced in his life. So Skip throws out like one little example of that, but boy, that, as we say around here, got me to thinking. I wanted to dig into this. What would Simeon have experienced in his lifetime? One of my favorite things about being a counselor is sitting down and listening to people's live stories. Our, our lives are fascinating. It's amazing to see what God does in each and every one of our lives, the miracles that are in there. So I wanted to dig back and see what I could find. So Simeon is 60 to 80 years old. That puts him born sometime in the late 50s B.C. or maybe early 50s B.C. Uh, in B.C., wait a minute, that's wrong, 70s B.C. In 63 B.C., Roman General Pompey, so 63 B.C., the Roman General Pompey the, the Great took Jerusalem by force. Was Simeon a, a child to experience this, or maybe even old enough to be a freedom fighter in the midst of this? The Romans at that time started assigning the title of high priest. The Jews didn't get to choose their own high priest anymore. God wasn't choosing the high priest. The Roman generals were choosing the high priest. Thousands of Jews died during this battle in Jerusalem. In 40 B.C., okay, so now he's a young man, the city fell to the Parthian army, which would be the Iranian army today, who placed it back under the power of the Jewish rulers. Did Simeon get to celebrate that? Was he excited that for the first time in his life, he had seen, in his adult life at all, he got to see people of Israel in charge of the city of Jerusalem? Did he celebrate that? Was he out there during the victory celebrations when this happened? If so, it was short-lived. Within the year, the empire struck back. In 37 B.C., after two years of vicious warfare, Herod the Great put a siege of Jerusalem with the help of Mark Antony. When the city fell, the Roman soldiers fighting for Herod's cause were so out of control, were so destructive, that Herod quickly wrote a letter to Rome asking that Rome demand their soldiers stop pillaging. Herod himself, out of his own pocket, had to bribe Roman soldiers to stop pillaging. Because so much destruction was being done, he said in his letter to Rome that he would be left the king of a desert if the Romans didn't stop. In a city of 100,000, which had swollen to way more than that during celebration times, Josephus claims that over a million Jews were killed during the attack under Herod and Mark Antony. A million people. This is A.D. 37. Simeon in Jerusalem would have been one of the few survivors of this. Can you imagine Simeon sitting somewhere overlooking a city in flames with bodies hip deep scattered throughout the city and saying, what's the point? This is hopeless. Where are you? There is no God. There is no relief. There is no hope. There is no consolation. And the Holy Spirit speaking to him and saying, tell you what, here's the deal. You won't die until you see it. 
the comfort that God offers Simeon. In 23 BC, when maybe Simeon was in his 50s, the temple of Herod was started. 18,000 skilled workers came into the city, and the temple was dedicated for first usage in 18 BC. For the first time in his adult life, for a long time, he got to see the temple being reestablished. It wouldn't last long. By AD 70, 70, 80, 90 years later, it would be destroyed again, but Simeon wouldn't know that. And here we are at 4 BC when Jesus is born. Think of all the evil Simeon had seen. Think of all the terror and horror and death and destruction that Simeon had seen. And yet he still hoped. We give up pretty quick sometimes, don't we? He had seen a lot of evil and a lot of evildoers. I wonder if Psalm 37 was one of his that he loved. It had to be. When, when, when uh, Jewish people face conflict or trial, they turn to the Psalms. Always have. Psalm 37 says this, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land to befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Imagine all that Simeon has seen. And it'll make sense how he responds when he meets the one-month-old Jesus Christ. By the way, just for fun, I looked up, according to the tradition of the Oriental Orthodox and the Eastern Orthodox churches, Simeon was not 60 to 80 years old, but somewhat older. According to their tradition, Simeon had been one of the 72 translators of the Septuagint, translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. When he hesitated on the translation of Isaiah 7.14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive, he hesitated, according to legend, because the Hebrew word for virgin can just mean young woman. It can't just mean an unmarried woman. And so as he struggled with that, should it be young woman or should it be virgin, an angel appeared to him and told him he would not die until he had seen God's Christ born of a virgin. Now, if this is true, if the Eastern Orthodox Church is right, that's miraculous. That would put Simeon at well over 200 years old at the time that he met Jesus. Not impossible to God, certainly possible. Therefore, miraculously long-lived. What if he was 200 years old or 250 years old? Well, then he also would have seen the Greek conquest of Israel and the Maccabean revolt as well. I think, I think someone who has experienced any of the stuff that he's done would be looking for comfort. And I think it's fascinating that God steps down to comfort this one old man and to give him the fulfillment of this. Over and over again, we see in Scripture this, this grand divine God, creator of heaven and earth, the judge of all things, by whom, for whom, and through whom all things are created, and yet periodically he reaches down and touches one soul just like ours. It's pretty amazing. Verse 27, And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Okay, so let's talk about what's happening here very quickly. First, um, let's throw up our map of the temple, the, the uh, Hebrew temple at the time. This is Herod's temple. Um, it's massive. It's several football fields in size, all of this. Uh, the amount of work that was put into it took several decades. In fact, it wasn't quite finished until 67 A.D. It was destroyed in 70 A.D. Bummer. But that was the, uh, um, it was still being built at this time, but most of the construction was done. 
So, and you have this huge, this huge walled area around it. Every time that Israel was, every time Jerusalem was fought over, the temple fell last. It's up on top of a hill. It slopes precipitously down on every side. Um, and so you would have the court of the Gentiles. You see that wording, the court of the Gentiles up there. That's the area around, the kind of the big area. Uh, and then there are these walls that represents the court of Israel, meaning only Jews can go in there. Um, Gentiles caught in there. If the Jews were in charge of the Temple Mount and a Gentile went in there, they could be immediately slain for doing so. Um, and so that was, that's the, the Gentiles are out here and are allowed to visit and see it and be impressed by it. Even converts to Judaism um, would be there, but they still couldn't go into the middle part. And the middle part is this. Now this right here is the court of women. So women were allowed in this section. Jewish women only were allowed in this section. Jewish men were allowed in this section. And then you have uh, uh, the holy place. Priests Only priests were allowed in there. And then under the holy place inside of it would have been the holy of holies, um, the ultimate holy spot where only one person could go once per year. That's what's going on. This is what all of the story of what's happening as they come in. So apparently either Jesus and uh, Mary and Joseph came in either through the Holda gates or maybe the Golden Gate, or the Northern Gate, the Lion's Gate, maybe one of these others. But they come in, so they come in, and they're in there. But here's what boggles my mind. And he came, it says, he, being Simeon, came to the, in the Spirit to the temple. This isn't just a little thing you do. Simeon would have had to prepare himself to go into the temple. You don't just go wandering into the temple. It's not Walmart. This is the temple of Almighty God. Uh, Walmart may be the temple of America's Almighty God, but that's not that. That's a whole other conversation. This is a... This is, this is them going, him going here meant he had to prepare his heart to go. All around, the, all around the Temple Mount, they've dug up hundreds of mikvah baths. These, these one-way-in and one-way-out baths where the people of Israel, when they wanted to go to the temple, they had to strip down, completely nude, go down in the bath, douse themselves, then come out, put on white robes, and then come up and go into the temple that way. So in other words, when Simeon shows up, Simeon comes in to a temple looking for a child where children are brought to be consecrated with the family and they're all dressed identically. The Bible does not even reference this, and yet we know the temple is always full of people. How on earth did he find Mary? He'd never seen her before or anything that we know of. He'd never seen Jesus. He just literally, the Holy Spirit leads him miraculously through crowds of people and he walks straight up to the child um, into the, as where they're, when they're there, or he's waiting, and all of a sudden they show up, and he knows it's the right one. In the midst of this sea of people who all look the same, he spots the one that God has sent him for. Now, I just got to stop and comment real quick. This is one of the things that jumped out at me. In a couple of years, Herod's going to have a bunch of children killed because he's trying to find baby Jesus, little Jesus, right? Herod is desperate to find it. Put that back up. Herod is desperate to find... Uh, desperate to find the baby Jesus, right? At this point, almost certainly Herod was right here in the Antonio Fortress. Now, it's possible that Herod was in his palace, which is in Bethlehem. And he missed him. No idea. That close. Jesus is right here. In fact, everybody misses him but two people. All the people in the temple miss him. You realize there's some rabbi that circumcised Jesus? How would you like that to be what you're known for? You're the one who circumcised the Son of God, and you had no clue that that's what you were doing. We get nothing about it. 
How about the one who, how about the one who washed him off or who, who performed this ceremony on him? What about the high, the high priest is right in here somewhere. All the priests are right in here. And Jesus, the consolation of Israel, is somewhere right here with his mother. And one old man and one old woman are going to know who he is. How close can we get and miss? Just, a, just stood out to me. Oh, you could be so close. Some priests sacrificed a couple of birds for the consecration of Jesus and had no clue. That's what they were doing. But Simeon was watching. And Simeon was listening, and the Spirit spoke to him. That gentle nudge, the impression, the still small voice, I don't know. I don't know. The Spirit speaks to all of us a little bit differently, but Simeon hears and responds. He rushes to the temple. He goes through the processes, and apparently the Holy Spirit guides him like some kind of radar directly to this mother and to her child. He walks straight up to them. It says in verse 28, and he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. This language here, the, the English fails us a little bit. Usually the word for Lord is kairios, which is a, um, it's kind of a positive word. This is not that word. This is despot, despotus, where we get the word despot, master. This is the word of a slave. The word for servant here is doulos, slave. Slave, this is, as one commentary said, there is no pride here. This is a slave speaking to his master. Master, you have been kind enough to fulfill your word to me. My life is to do as you see fit, just like you promised. The life is owned by the master, not the servant. This is a fundamental reason, by the way, that we as Christians do not hold in euthanasia or suicide or things like that. Our life is, belongs to another. The length of my life and the terms of my death are God's problem. He owns me. He is my master. He owns my life and everything about it. I am merely the slave. Even whether I am ready to go or not, I don't get a vote. I don't take a vote. I go when the order is given. And, and this is something that Simeon teaches us right here in this moment. Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according, and he sees it as a privilege. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you, may, that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles, and for glory to your people in Israel. So, just to understand, the light you reveal to the Gentiles, the light that you bring glory to Israel on, this is the gospel yet again. You're revealing yourself to all people. Simeon declares it right here and now. You're good enough. Um, you're a good enough Jewish audience to know that Simeon's no way he's making these words up as he's going, right? You know he's quoting a prophet or a psalm, and you'd be right. Um, Isaiah 61 through 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness the people's but the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you, and all Gentiles, or all nations, same language, shall become to you in your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Isaiah 49.6 will say, I will give you a light for the Gentiles. 42.6 says, I give you a covenant for the people for a light to the Gentiles. Jesus is the light of the world, revealing the glory of Israel, and to reveal the God to those people who don't know Him yet. Amen. But who is he revealing? This is kind of cool. This language that you have prepared for my eyes have seen your salvation. So the language, the Bible is written in Greek. But it wasn't spoken in Greek. The people were speaking Aramaic and or Hebrew for the most part. And so in this moment, you have Simeon speaking Aramaic or Hebrew, which is okay. We don't know for sure which one, but it's okay because the word here is the same apparently in both. When he says, your salvation, 
the way you would say your, Yah, Yahweh's salvation, Yah's salvation, the way you say that in Hebrew is Yeshua. When Simeon says this, when he says, for my eyes have seen Yeshua, the name for Jesus. Here we have the declaration who he is, why that's his name. He is the fulfillment of God's salvation, Yeshua. And his father and his mother, verse 33, marveled at what was said about him. People were probably staring. Maybe Mary was disturbed. A year ago, it had been an angel that showed up randomly. A month ago, it was shepherds that showed up randomly. Now this old man shows up randomly. How often is this going to happen? Right? Just wait till a bunch of random professors from Persia show up, right? This must be a weird thing that she learns to get used to. These add up. Verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. First she marvels. He takes the priestly paternal role. He blesses them, but he isn't done talking. He then turns and speaks to Mary, this one-month-old baby. That's all that's there. So we got a picture so we can picture a one-month-old baby while we're, while we're talking about this. This is the stone of stumbling and sanctuary. He is the scandalon. His message is offensive to everyone, but only those who are most aware of their own wretchedness. He will require us to deconstruct our faith in ourselves and our faith in humanity. To accept him is to reject ourselves as sovereign. He will live in a state of being opposed, Simeon says. A sword will pierce through your own soul also, he tells to Mary. It's a little even more creepy, this passage, that it's a parenthetical. As if he's speaking to everybody. And then it says, then he turned to Mary. So he turns and says to Mary, this word. And then it's in parentheses as if now he leans in just to whisper in Mary's ear. And a sword will pierce your soul also. And by the way, if it wasn't creepy enough, this isn't the normal Greek word for sword. This word is ramphei. It's a very specific reference to a very specific weapon. The Thracian sword. It was a spear that over time transitioned into a sword. It was considered a weapon of terror. I have a, we have a couple of pictures of what it would have looked like. Some ancient ones still all rusted up and one cleaned up. This is the only way, according to historians, this is the only weapon that caused the Romans to change aspects of their armor because of having to face this weapon. This was a terrifying weapon to people. This, this word is used for sword seven times in the New Testament. Once here... The other six are all in the book of Revelation. My heart broke for Mary all the more as I read this and realized that for whatever reason, and I don't know what reason, Simeon is inspired to tell her, this terror weapon will pierce your soul. Hidden things like human hearts are going to be revealed, even Mary's. But you need two witnesses in Jewish tradition and law. The more faithful and righteous the person is better. So here we go. And there was a prophetess, Anna. It's the same name as Hannah, meaning grace. The daughter of Phanuel, his name means the face of God, of the tribe of Asher. Advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Then as a widow from then until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Anna and there was a person in a, taking the role of Anna in a, uh, a movie that I thought was perfect. Um, there's no acknowledged prophet at the time in Israel, and yet she is acknowledged as a prophetess. 
It's hard to know what that means clearly, but maybe she had deceived some future insight from the Holy Spirit like Simeon had. By this time, many Jews were uncertain as their tribal affiliation. Asher, which means happy one, was known for their prosperity, delicacies, yet tough and reliable soldiers, and as Paul found, also known for their beautiful women who were married off to kings. We don't know why exactly this reference that she's from the tribe of Asher. It may be possible that she actually slept on the temple grounds. That would certainly be unorthodox. Uh, Many of the commentaries struggled with accepting that. Um, But maybe, maybe she did. Maybe it's literal. Maybe she was just almost always there since the time of her husband's untimely and tragic death from then until now when she's 84 years old. She had been there faithfully, but maybe literally there on the ground, sleeping on the ground, and people just took care of her. But she certainly knew a lot about waiting and being patient and hoping. She was faithful to pray and worship and fast. And remember, she had experienced all the things that Simeon had and more. A faithful witness. Verse 38, And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. So she walks up just in time to see this going on. She declares that this Jesus Christ, this baby, this Jesus of Joseph, the son of Mary, is for the redemption of Jerusalem. So the idea of this, of this dynamic duo, Simeon and Anna, I have a picture of them together. That I, love, I love sometimes how artists capture things. Just the rapture in, in uh, Simeon's face here, the satisfaction um, and the joy in Anna, the second reliable witness. And here's what blows me away once again. Our, our, the way we think about things is turned on its head. This old man and this old woman in this account do the one thing, one of the things that old men and old women aren't known for. They see and they hear. They're the only ones who do. In a temple full of people, this old man sees what no one else can see, and this old woman hears what no one else can hear. So how do we wait? Their example is unbelievably beautiful. Eagerly and patiently we wait and while we wait we watch and we listen we trust and we hope see hope is all about waiting romans 8 24 and 25 says this for in this hope we were saved now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see then we wait for it with patience stand if you will And as we've learned from these two a little bit about waiting and what they've experienced and how they wait anyway, our our cheap uh, um, excuses kind of go out the window in the face of Simeon and Anna, don't they? The willingness and the ability to wait and to watch and to listen, to be patient even while we eagerly await, waiting for the moment when God sends us and calls us. I want to read through this entire section um, as we're standing here together so that we close our time out here this morning with God's Word. Um, Listen and let the Spirit speak to your heart. What stands out to you? What opens up your soul to wait? When the time had come for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
They came to the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword shall pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed." And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not part from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for redemption of Israel. And that's us. As we sing together and pray together, listen to what the Spirit has.